Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Exploring Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Krim. Uh, welcome. And this show was started to explore the ideas, the strategies, the companies that are shaping the future of healthcare. And it's been a really fun journey so far. I've got to connect with some great folks and look forward to continuing this in 2022. And so on this episode, I sit down with Amy Otto, who is the Director of Client Experience at Virtual Med Staff. And the Virtual Med Staff is a full-service telemedicine company that specializes in the placement of psychiatrists, hospitalists, and neurologists within hospital clinics and medical groups across America. Uh, they really focus on the mental health space. And, you know, Amy has spent her career in the healthcare and employee benefits industry, and she really brought a unique set of experiences and knowledge to this discussion around telemedicine, mental health, cross-state licensure, and payment parity, and also podcasting, uh, which she has some background in. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Amy. I uh, hope that you will as well. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Amy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start here and uh, get a little bit more about your background and learn what led you into the healthcare and the employee benefit space. Oh boy, it's a great question. Um, so it's kind of come full circle for me. I uh, started on the diagnostic imaging side of things with um, one of the larger companies. And I really learned a lot about managed care during that situation because here I was selling these new and innovative ways to detect things like cancer, taking one cell and making them look like 6,000 cells and um, for early detection of various diseases. And I had talked to these physicians and they get really excited about it. And then they'd look at me and they'd say, is it covered by managed care? Uh, wow, you know, physicians can't even practice medicine the way they'd like to anymore because it's all a matter of how things are reimbursed. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I was a genomic and esoteric testing specialist. So I learned a lot about, um, you know, different ways of diagnosing things. But again, it came back to what was covered. Um, from there, I uh, explored the employee benefits side of things and um, more on the like the um, ancillary benefits for accident and cancer insurance, things like that. And once I was able to um, put my mind around how the system actually worked and that there was such a thing as the charge master and um, kind of learned a little bit more about the game of benefits, I loved the strategy of it and realized that, you know, the large, larger um, percentage of claims are driven by a small percentage of the population because they have comorbidities and really that the way to create um, a better claims blend was to have a healthier workforce or have a healthier employee or have a healthier individual. So then I explored the wellness side of things and I worked for a wellness company where we implemented programs primarily with municipalities because what a great way to be a good steward of taxpayer dollars than to create a healthier employee and healthier environment. So from that, it uh, was a springboard then to the employee benefits on more of the self-funded side of things. So I worked with um, larger groups in trying to come up with strategies to um, save them money on their benefits because I found that it's like the second largest expense behind um, payroll for many companies. And so the only way to really get a handle on it and to bring those costs down, it required a lot of strategy. So long-winded answer, but that's how I got into the employee benefits space of things. And then more recently, um, became very intrigued with the idea of telemedicine. I was already selling telemedicine strategies to some of my larger clients as a way to bring down their healthcare costs. And when the opportunity came up for me to join the Jackson Healthcare team, with their virtual med uh, staff program, I was thrilled. So um, kind of all different aspects of, of employee benefits or health insurance and benefits. Yeah, what I love about your background is, like you said, you've got to peer into so many different aspects of the process and, and part of the system. And, um, and I just think about what a unique perspective that brings to the table when thinking through and, and discussing some of these things. So. Yeah, so let's talk about the telemedicine piece. Um, you know, I wanted to just pick your brain and, and kind of see from your perspective, where are we in this evolution of telemedicine? Because it's a, I'll say it's been a buzzword. It's been something that we've been hearing a lot about for 
four or five years, especially a lot more over the past 18 months with COVID. Um, but yeah, where, from your perspective, are we in, in that evolution of, of that technology and avenue of treatment? Great question. So it used to be that I had to actually explain to people what telemedicine was. Then there was COVID. And now, unless you're living under a rock, you know what telemedicine is. If you haven't experienced a visit yourself, you know of somebody that has. So I always tell the story about my mom. She's in her, her 80s and she's never understood what I do for a living. Like even on when I was on the health insurance side of things, she never really got it. So she's always told her friends that I was a pharmaceutical rep because, ah. you know, that's easy to explain to my friends. Oh, my daughter's a pharmaceutical rep. And, and I always laugh about it because I've never been a pharmaceutical rep, but my mom um, saw her cardiologist via telemedicine. She had a pacemaker put in shortly before the pandemic hit. And my sister went over with her iPad and my mom saw the doctor via the iPad and my mom called me and she's like, you're not going to believe this. Your sister came over and I saw my doctor in the computer. Uh-huh. And she's like, can you believe that? And I'm like, uh-huh. yes, mom. I know what I do every day. I yeah. sell telemedicine programs. And uh, it was just so funny that finally this realization came to her that, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. And and I think, you know, like my mom, a lot of other people realize that there is benefit, there's value, it's easy, it saves time, it keeps you out of the emergency room. And if you weren't sick before you went to the doctor's office, you might be sick now because you're sitting next to all these sick people. So it really, um, it placed telemedicine beyond the tipping point. So I don't have to explain what telemedicine is anymore. And many hospital systems they were forced to use telemedicine whether they wanted to or not. Um, so it definitely, um, it propelled the industry in a ways we could never imagine and increased those visits. Gosh, uh, I think the, the 13th week of 2020, which would have been like towards the end of, of March, early April, when the pandemic had really hit, um, telemedicine visits were up like 154% in just that one week. So um, looking at 2020 and already um, 2021, I mean, it, it's been exponential, the number of telemedicine visits. So um, I, as you look at the future of telemedicine, it's definitely not going away. I think it's going to become more integrated into health plans and also become more analytical and more um, with, like, remote patient monitoring for diabetes and different um, comorbidities. Um, it's going to keep patients in their home and out of the hospital. So um, definitely an exciting time to be in telemedicine for sure. I've been keeping my eyes on, I, you know, my understanding is, is COVID brought about some emergency provisions that have really expanded the scopes and the number of services and the type of treatment that can be issued over telemedicine or virtually. And what I understand is that, that as that has continued to uh, get extended out, we've been able to keep those benefits. But, you know, there's a real threat that unless some other legislation or changes are made, we would go back to kind of the way before. So any thoughts on that or are you hearing any rumblings on your end as far as how that might shake out? Yes, it's a constant topic of conversation. Um there were a lot of leniencies made because of the public health emergency. And some of these leniencies were, um, you know, that you didn't have to have a specific platform for telemedicine. Um, you could actually conduct a, a FaceTime telemedicine visit, which, you know, for us has always been um, like a HIPAA compliant issue or um, a high tech compliance issue. So it expanded the number of platforms. And in addition to that, there were leniencies for um, like cross-state licensure and the position to be able to practice um, actually giving uh, emergency credentialing privileges to physicians, whereas that process can sometimes be very lengthy. Um, in addition to that, a lot of the reimbursements have been on par with that of an in-person visit. And that's what we've been hoping for all along is payment parity. And we saw it in 2020, uh, 
one of the larger hospital systems that I cover um, in Georgia, they saw over a thousand percent increase in their telemedicine visits. And when they were looking back at their claims, they had less of a denial rate for the telemedicine claims than they did the in-person claims. So there were a lot of parallels that, um, you know, a lot of analytics and a lot of data where you can look at the parallels between the in-person visit and um, the telemedicine visit, and they've been very favorable. Now, we're hoping that some of these leniencies continue, especially as it, it relates to cross-state licensure and um, reimbursement, because not every state is, um, how should I say, is positively viewed for telemedicine. Some of them don't have parity laws. Some of them are make it really difficult for physicians to get licensed from other states. That process can be very long. Um, so hoping that we maybe meet in the middle, but as the public health emergency in some states has been pulled back, um, some of the older um, telemedicine laws have come back into effect. And so it's given some people cold feet. And so all we can do is really um, be advocates for parity and stay close with our local legislation as well as the, the federal laws as it relates to telemedicine. I appreciate sharing that. Yeah, that was one of the biggest factors that through my reading and, and having these type of conversations has been, I, there seems like such a hesitancy on the standpoint of carriers or health plans to actually pay for those services performed virtually or even in the home, and that being one of the biggest barriers to really rolling out a lot of these solutions, so. Yes, it's, it's so complex, I had no idea. But each law has its own, each state has its own laws, and even different definitions for telemedicine. It's really wild um, how there can be that much of a swing from one state to another. Um, but some states have been uh, very, proactive in the legislative process. For instance, Illinois, especially as it relates to um, mental health parity, it, they've made huge leaps. There's um, the Kennedy family has a foundation, um, the Kennedy Forum, and Patrick Kennedy has been a huge proponent of parity for, for not, not just um, reimbursement parity, but parity for mental health, meaning that these these visits should be reimbursed the same as, as any other type of visit. And notoriously, mental health visits have been reimbursed on the lower end. And that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to, to have find psychiatrists. I mean, there's a huge shortage of psychiatrists in our country. Not to mention that the average age right now of a practicing psychiatrist is about 57, 58 years old. So they're nearing retirement age and we're not the backfill, you know, the number of psychiatrists that are really needed. And it's, it's really eye-opening when you look at some states that what we do is we take per 100,000 residents, how many psychiatrists, and there are some counties in Texas that have zero. And when you start to go up into the upper um, Northwest, there are some states that have very few licensed physicians. So that's where we um, start to look at the scale of mental health and accessibility. And that's what I get most excited about because that's how telemedicine truly can help. So tell me more about the mission of virtual med and, uh, and how you guys, you know, more about the mission and then more about the model and the solution that you guys are bringing to providers. Sure. So what we're trying to do every day is just to improve the delivery of patient care and the lives of everyone we touch. So we do that in a number of different ways. Um, most of our programs are with larger hospital systems, but some of them and the ones that we've been very successful with recently are the smaller hospital systems in the rural areas where um, patients would have to travel over two hours to see a neurologist or psychiatry, for instance, the visits, they may be scheduling eight weeks out and so those are huge issues. You know, if somebody needs mental health uh, resources and, and needs medication management, they can't wait eight weeks. So what we've done is through telemedicine, been able to offer patients these visits. And it's 
it's actually quite simple, which people have figured out with the um, with the pandemic to have this visit doesn't really require any fancy um, platform or high tech equipment. Um, so what we do is we we look at their current patient volume and really try to help identify the areas of need and where we can make the and from that, um, we customize a program. No two programs are alike. Um, they are all customized to meet the client's needs. Um, and again, whether that means um, really offering maybe work-life balance for their on-site positions and just doing nights and weekend coverage, or if they have the need for you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, probably the biggest impact we've made has been in the emergency room. Um, and for mental health, each state also has a law under the Ryan Height Act, which um, is called an involuntary hold. So if a patient presents themselves as a threat to themselves or others, they're placed on this hold. In some states, it's 36 hours. Some states, it's 96 hours. So what hospitals have to do because of the lack of psychiatrists is hire sitters to sit with the patients during that period of time. And so where we've made a big impact is having a psychiatrist that can see the patient via telemedicine to do an assessment, maybe start medication management, um, and just really expedite the whole process and in many cases, make the family feel more comfortable, make the patient more comfortable, and be able to clearly assess whether that patient needs to be admitted, can be discharged, um, or be held for additional observation. So we've made a huge impact in that area um, in the emergency room. Um, and again, our, our mission is really just to get out there and, and talk about what we do, which is telepsychiatry and teleneurology, just those two specialties, and just to see how we can help to see more patients and enhance the lives of, of patients wherever they are. Um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, and there's a lot of great people out there, a lot of great farmers, a lot of great communities, and yet healthcare isn't, isn't great. I mean, there's not that many major medical centers, so I've always felt like your, the quality of your healthcare should not be determined by your geographical location. And telemedicine definitely helps with that. Um, so just clarify too, do you guys have the, the technology and you guys bring the platform um, that, the, that the provider at the hospital uses and runs all, and manages all this on? Is that part of your solution? That's a great question. We do not. And that's what makes us a little bit more unique in that we work with existing equipment, or we can help them build what we call a WOW, which is a workstation on wheels. We can get them, you know, kind of the specifications. We have some clients that just order their stuff off Amazon, um, especially for the psych piece, because you don't really need much more than, you know, a camera and um, can be a laptop, it can be an iPad, or just a computer, a workstation on wheels. And a lot of these visits are conducted via video, via DYO, or um, Zoom, Teams, you name it. Um, the platform isn't really all that important other than the fact that it has to be HIPAA compliant. We do a lot of culture testing with our IT department just to make sure that the systems that um, our clients are using are um, compliant. But we do not sell the equipment, which means we're not constantly selling upgrades. We're not trying to um, you know, upgrade equipment. We, we sell um, the program, the management of the program, um, and also, you know, the, the staffing, which is the physician piece that um, individuals are, are really looking for. If they're a recruiter, that recruiter is looking to hire, um, you know, quality physicians. So um, that's what um, virtual med stuff does. We strategic partners on the technology side. If needed, we can re recommend a, a partner, but um, not all about the technology. Yeah, no, I can see the benefit too of having some flexibility there and being able to work with what's already in place or, you know, bring in the technology if, if needed. I don't know if you have any thoughts around when we start talking about virtual care and telemedicine, um, and you mentioned the shortage in psychiatrists. I know we have a, a shortage in physicians uh, in the United States. So, um, I guess 
you know, one of the things I've thought a lot about is the virtual doesn't necessarily solve the shortage of positions. You know, you still have to have the position on the other end, but it definitely can lead to more efficiencies and uh, ability, like you said, to have more ongoing triaging to where um, I'm still monitoring my patient, doing so more passively or asynchronously, and then we're calling people in when we when we need them or when we notice irregularities in their in their health. So, yes, you're right. Um, and one of the strategies we've had to implement is is using um, LCSW, so licensed clinical social workers, to help with that triage process to really have physicians practicing at the top of their license. So anything that can be done by a nurse practitioner or a P or an LCSW, those, those types of visits are, um, are being triaged in a different way. So we may, we may put a program in place where the initial consult is done by a licensed clinical social worker of ours remotely, and then it, it gets you know triaged as necessary. But uh, yes, the shortage, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that other than maybe um, offering some government funded programs to incentivize um, individuals to, to go to medical school um, because those, the student loan debts are, are huge and it's, it's a lot of school. Um, and a lot of physicians are leaving. Uh, that's, you know, the, the pandemic, I think, really shook up the medical community in ways we could never imagine, you know are taking earlier retirement because they just can't handle the stress. I mean, it's been so, so stressful for the, the healthcare system. Something that got brought up on my, my last episode too, which I, I need to do some more digging in on this, but, you know, it's my understanding based on this person's comments um, was too that, you know, there's a cap on the number of residencies that are given out every year and that are matched. And so there's a lot of folks mm -hmm. that go through their medical school you know, check all the boxes and then for whatever reason, they don't get matched. And so even yeah. thinking, even thinking about things like that, if, if there was some adjustment and, and some removal of those caps or raising those caps that, that may allow for some more opportunities um, for sure. Um, another interesting thing that came up in another ep two ep episodes as well, which I thought was really interesting and kind of goes to the social worker that you mentioned is the idea of like a community manager and I know that's been utilized in Africa, that's been utilized, uh, I know some in the Pacific Northwest and like Alaska, but definitely to portions of the population that um, are typically more poverty, poverty stricken and, mm -hmm. uh, and potentially have um, hesitations of physicians and doctors in general, having that person that's respected you know, in the community that is given some training and some of that initial triaging can open those doors that have originally been, you know, historically been, sh been shut, so. Sure, so another issue has been broadband access. Like that's something we don't think about. I mean, we, we have smartphones, but when you get into some of these rural areas, the connectivity in, in the broadband is a, a real issue. Um, so there have been positive movements in just even recent in legislation for funding of broadband connection and, and getting, um, you know, service where it needs to be. So yeah, when you talk about Africa and a lot of these um, mm -hmm. remote areas, that's still going to be an issue. Um, but that's like the first step because, you know, we live in metro areas where, you know, you don't even really think about Wi-Fi or, or accessibility, but yeah, we're lucky. So what does your day-to-day -day look like as director of client experience? Yeah, so I work with um, some of our current clients really trying to keep an eye on their key performance indicators and making sure that we are meeting them or exceeding them, um, working on process improvements, um, something as simple as like for stroke. Um, time is brain is what we talk about when it comes to stroke. So uh, mm. if, a, if a patient is having a stroke, for them to um, get administered TPA, it has to be within a, a window of time. And as, as more time lapses, they kill more brain cells and their chances of a full recovery are, are less. So I uh, was just in um, Chicago last week doing walkthroughs with a hospital system that I cover and went to each location and really walked through from the time the patient comes in the door 
walk me through the process. When do, when do you call the telemedicine um, physician? Um, what are the vitals? What are the things you're, you're taking? And then when, when do you get the, them to the CT scan? But this is the interesting part. I started to count my steps from where the patient was to the CT scan. And some of these hospitals, it was like on the second or third floor. So they're waiting for elevators. They're like, and they call a code fast. And that, that time is, is of the essence. And some of them, the CT scan was like 10 steps away in the ED. So um, the reason I bring this up is one of the things I do is I look at process improvement and workflow and how, the, how it can be optimized to provide the best patient care. Um, because our programs are customized, we don't come in and just simply say, this is the way it is. We try to work and integrate with their system and with their staff. Um, so as best as we can to emulate having that physician on site, how can we um, you know, maximize our services? And, and so that's a huge part of what I do. Um, a lot of data analysis, a lot of looking at how can we um, trim down costs? How can we look at if a physician is on call for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I might look at utilization by hour, by day of the week, and try to fine tune and tweak to how we can make the economics work best for the client. So that's the most affordable program, giving them the biggest impact. Um, a lot of relationship um, development and a lot of trust, a lot of um, just really trying to work with clients to see how we can help them. Is it another program? Um, what does their bottleneck look like for outpatient neurology? Um, looking at different ways we can enhance patient care. So in a nutshell, I, there's a lot of things that I do, but um, a lot of it has to do with just um, improving the current process. What I love about that is in the world where you know, technology has disrupted and lowered the cost of things. And it's such a, it's made a lot of our processes uh, more efficient, uh, less manual. What I love is that still some of these problems requires going to the site and saying, how far is this person having to walk from point A to point B? And how does that factor into the time that it takes to treat that patient? So. Exactly. And I mean, even as simple as we found in some um, emergency rooms or like they'll take the patient into the CT scan. They're doing a scan of the brain just to kind of see, um, get the images that the, the teleneurologist can then read and help interpret and make a, a decision on whether that patient needs to receive TPA. Um, can they be stabilized and, and discharged? Do they need to be admitted? All those decisions are being made. And we realized in some of these areas where they're calling the physician back after the CT has been done, like the actual phone, they can't call out. It has to go through the switchboard. Hmm. Sometimes they'll get put placed on hold with the switchboard and then the switchboard has to connect with the physician rather than them picking up and just calling the physician. So simple things like that have really made a big difference when, when being on site and, and looking at the walkthrough process. So Again, it's cool that you've got the different perspectives because in my conversations, it's, it's just so funny to, not funny, but it's interesting to talk about these, these issues and, and how to, and these solutions in the context of how a physician thinks about them and approaches them. And then, you know, how a, um, like a health plan or a payer provides it, or even an employer provides it. It's interesting to, to think about it from all these different perspectives. Um, That's for sure. So, you know, given our background in employee benefits and and looking at stop loss and how things work. Um, I love saving people money. And so if somebody has an on-site clinic, which a lot of larger employers do, and when I was on the broker side of things, I, I would help with that strategy and had some recommendations for on-site clinics. And so you look at the claims data and you see how that helps an employer, a larger employer. So I've kind of taken that a step further and done data analysis for some larger employers on what is your mental health costing you? Like, what is the cost of doing nothing? Like if these employees need um, somebody to talk to, they need to see a psychiatrist because they have you know, anxiety and depression, which by the way, 
um, during COVID went from like 11% in 2019 to 56%. So huge increase in anxiety and depression. 26% um, of individuals ages 18 to 24 had thoughts of suicide. I mean, that's 26%. That CDC study just really was alarming to me. Um, and women more than men. Women are juggling the family and trying to work, and there's just a lot of anxiety. And for many, they're homeschooling their children at the time of COVID. So um, it's only been um, increased. The need has only increased. So if I can show a, a larger company that has an on-site health clinic, if I pull out those claims related to mental health and I show them the savings of having um, a strategy through telemedicine is huge mm. because they're offering their employees something of value, something they need. They're saving them time. They don't have to take the whole day off work to go see a psychiatrist. Um, they're helping with medication management. And if they offer it to the employees at a low cost or no cost, how much it can really save their health plan because of the comorbidities associated also with you know, depression and anxiety um, and the productivity, the absenteeism. There's just, I get way into this, so no. <laughs> I should probably stop there, but it is, um, it's a passion of mine. I mean, just see how, how many people can you help? And when you show an employer how it's saving them money and doing the right thing, it is pretty compelling. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fascinated by that that too. So, you know, go into as many details as you like. And uh, it's interesting too, when someone is battling mental illness, or maybe if they have a, um, uh, like a depression episode, that's not the type of person that's in a state where they're going to jump in their car and go and see their physician at the clinic. So they're much more likely, but they are much more likely to pick up their phone and mm -hmm. dial into FaceTime or whatever platform is being used and have that conversation. And, uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a I think that's a very critical one. Um, how do you kind of lower those barriers of entry for people to use and, and initiate that conversation with the person that can help them most? So. Exactly. And along those lines, something that has come up um, continuously in conversations, especially in rural areas, um, I, they don't want to be sitting next to their psychiatrist at their son's football game. And in some of these small towns where there's so few psychiatrists, or they don't want to run into them at the grocery store. Uh, so having uh, that psychiatrist that is via telemedicine and likely not living anywhere close to them, uh, they find it easier to open up. So um, it's, it's something I hadn't really thought about until um, looking at, there's a rural uh, group that I have also in Illinois, and they decided they did want to offer some resources to their employees during COVID. And that was a benefit that they weren't going to have somebody that they knew or that anybody else knew. So it's um, interesting. Mm -hmm. it, it really was. It was a point that was brought up. I could totally see that. I mean, I don't feel comfortable, you know, so yeah, um, it's a good thing. Let me ask you this. Have you guys partnered with any colleges or universities? Because the, the question was posed on this podcast, does everyone really need it? Uh, primary care physician and and specifically focused on that demographic of college kids and maybe what you need during that time of your life is you actually need uh, more of a therapist or a mental health coach or a consultant mm -hmm. so um, have you guys partnered with any colleges or universities are they looking taking a look at that wow so you might have read I, there was a, a blog post that I did about this because um, at the beginning of the school year you know it just it resonates with me so much my uh, my daughter was a resident assistant in college, and I will never forget, we were getting her dorm room ready, and she had just gotten back from, like, her first training session for to be an RA, and um, we went to, I was hanging something on the wall, and the, the chair was like a rocking chair, and I'm like, this is weird, like, why is this a rocking chair, and she told me, she's like, well, there's a huge instance of um, suicide on campus. And so those are anti-suicide chairs. Like you can't hang yourself when you're on. The, I'm telling you, it was like, wow, 
mean, like a ton of bricks. And she was having to go through mental health training to be able to detect or keep an eye on um, residents under her watch that might not be leaving their room very often or whose hygiene habits had gone down or you know, just various things for her to look at. And she said she was just terrified that at some point she could be on duty and someone would commit suicide. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you're 19 years old and this is what you're having to think about. And it, it really just shocked me. And at a school with very high ac academic standards, it was, it was pretty, pro pretty um, relevant that they had to go through this training because it was a problem. Wow. Um, and fast forward to, you know, both my kids graduated from the same school and there were a number of kids that committed suicide and just how daunting that would be just to be away from home and have the pressure. And so answer to your question is it is a passion of mine to try to help, um, especially because the funding I don't feel for mental health programs is adequate in a lot of universities. Um, we haven't made headway yet in that area. A lot of them, a lot of the universities seem to think they do a good job on their own through their clinic. Um, and I'll tell you, many universities have had to be, beef up their mental health strategy for their professors, for their own employees, as well as their students. So I'm not going to give up on that. Um, we haven't put a whole lot of resources into um, universities as far as a prospecting um, strategy, but it will happen. It definitely will happen. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we can talk more about that as a side conversation because I'm, I'm interested in that as well. And I'm, I'm interested in tools as simple as like, I've got a fitness tracker and mm -hmm. some of the recent updates, you know, in the morning when I, when I look at my sleep and how I, when I slept, I've got a little journal function. And they've continued expanding the number of questions that you can ask yourself every morning. And, and you know, there's a lot of them around, did you feel stress? What was mm -hmm. that stress level? You know, did you feel uh, motivated? Did you feel in control? You know, did you feel energized? Those type of things. And mm -hmm. um, I've just thought a lot about, you know, if, if more people make that a part of their practice and you start gathering that data and this is, mm -hmm. it's just a very comfortable every morning. I, I give some thought to like, how did I feel yesterday? Did I feel stressed? And then that data, and we're comfortable sharing that with people or people are monitoring that we can look and say, Hey, like, tell me about this week last, you know, tell me about last week where four out of the five days, you just rated your stress as medium or high. And I think about in, in, in college um, where something like that would have been very useful, you know, and, and someone watching that, and sharing that with somebody, they could have said like, what was going on there? Like, let's talk through that. And um, just that prompting, I probably would have opened up about some more things, but. And I think there are a lot of really good apps out for that, that uh, would help the university population. Like Headspace does a really good job. Um, and I know that, you know, there are others that, I, I think an app like that to monitor mental health and just overall well-being makes so much sense for a university. And they have all those added fees, like they have a, a health fee, a transportation fee, a sports fee, all those fees that are added on to tuition. It seems like a, a small investment with a large impact um, where we would plug into that strategy would probably be more for like medication management or um, you know the, the higher acute individuals but yes it's i think it's so important and, and there are some some really good apps but again it's a matter of engagement you know yeah which i'm sure being in the wellness space you probably ran into that a lot mm. it's like we've got all these great perks and, and these great programs but if people don't use them at the end of the day like <laughs> yeah well it's it's interesting in the wellness um from the wellness aspect it's like the people that always jumped on the bandwagon first were the ones that didn't need it. They were already fit. They were already on their own. Um, but it, engagement is a, is a huge, huge issue. How do you incentivize? And um, yeah, for sure. Getting people engaged is, is a challenge. So I wanted to ask about this. So one of the reasons we got connected is I understand you spent some time uh, as a radio host and I wanted to learn some more about that how did you get into that and, and what was that experience like and what did it what did it teach you oh gosh 
It's funny how it happened. I was at a networking event um, and I had a guy come up to me and say, um, have you Googled yourself? And this was, gosh, 13 years or more ago. And I'm like, no, you might want to. And that's all I said. <laughs> so, of course, I get home that night. First thing I'm doing, I'm Googling myself. Uh-huh. There's an Amy Otto from Chicago, which I had moved to Atlanta from Chicago. And she was being indicted for killing her husband. And that was like the first thing that popped up. And oh, I'm like, no. gosh. And this woman was younger than I was. We looked nothing alike. But again, it was like, what? And so I pulled out his business card and I called him and I'm like, okay, so I Googled myself. Now what? <laughs> said, well, I can uh, show you how you can be at the top of that search engine. And it's, it's you and your credentials and the positive things you stand for. And I was like, okay, well, you have my interest. And he's like, so what you can do is co-host the Atlanta Business Radio Show with me. It's a podcast and uh, I'll show you how it works. And he's like, and you also meet lots of great people and you'll be able to provide them something of value by this podcast and you'll get to know them. And, and for me in sales, I'm, I'm not pushy. I'm, I'm much more of a, let me see if I can provide value and let's build that relationship and that trust and move forward from there. So he said, well, it's definitely going to do that. So uh, the Atlanta Business Radio Show started and it was so much fun. I'm like yourself, I'm super curious. I love to learn and I genuinely find people fascinating. You know, so many people have unique qualities and hobbies and strengths and just stories. So that's how it started. And I co-hosted the Atlanta Business Radio Show for, gosh, a couple of years and continue to be a guest on occasion because I miss it. But um, that's how it started and just a great way of meeting individuals and also connecting individuals. That's one thing we did very successfully. We, we might have three guests and those three guests would be great for them to meet each other. And at that time, everything was done in person. Um, so we would all meet in the studio and I mean, nothing better than a shared experience of a podcast. It was so much fun. I looked forward to it. It was only once a week, um, but really enjoyed that time. I'm sure you enjoy the same thing just together and learning. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of what you said just resonated with me and, um, and the connecting people has been a surprising benefit of this, um, one of the guys, I, I do another podcast, a more, uh, the Nicholas Crim show where I interviewed some more wide ranging guests and different topics. And it's been interesting. I interviewed one guy that was in government and he shared the strategy around how to draw more, um, nonprofits into his County. And then another guy that I interviewed, he works at Georgia tech and he just happened to listen, but he's involved in government. And he's like, we were just talking about that the other day. So my people are now trying to reach out to Steve and, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I, I never expected that this would be an outcome from this, but it is cool that the way that it, it connects people for sure. So. As a matter of fact, I had interviewed um, the director of HR for Jackson healthcare. And I'm telling you, it was like 13 years ago. And we were just talking about all the amazing things they did at the company. It's like, this is crazy. I got to see this in action. So I went on campus and had lunch with him and I just kind of kept my eye on Jackson Healthcare thinking I'd love to work for this company, but I didn't really, I didn't want to be a recruiter and just, you know, it, it didn't manifest itself at the time, but, uh, you know, fast forward and the opportunity came up and I had met um, the president of Jackson Healthcare at a conscious capitalism event that I was involved in. And, you know, it's just kind of things intersect and, Things happen for a reason. It was a great way to meet lots of folks. I've seen it put a couple different ways recently, but the essence of it is like meet more people, have more conversations, good things come out of those things. And um, we can have a lot more of them with mediums like this. It doesn't always have to be face-to-face, which is awesome as well. But um, any, any tips about like prepping for shows or because something that you said, one of my favorite things is just really trying to, look at people's background, things that they've been involved in and really dig and try to poke around and find maybe the things that they haven't talked about before or just things that they may not think are unique or interesting, but I, I find fascinating. So like any tips on how to 
like prep and, and find those things? Sure. I mean, Google is your best friend for, um, and really looking at people's profiles on LinkedIn. Um, and then just bringing people out. I mean, everybody has something interesting and unique to talk about and just finding what that might be and getting them to open up. Um, I, I think that asking general questions that aren't necessarily business related, you know, that I used to always like to say, where do you see yourself five years from now? Mm -hmm. What's, what's the, your favorite book or what are you reading right now? You know, those types of questions to get them talking about something other than business and really get to know them um, and their unique skill set and what they do enjoy about, um, you know, their current position. Um, So I'd say, you know, Google is your best friend. Find find something in there. Are they a runner? Do you find out that they've, um, like, I raised chickens. Um, don't have them anymore, but for many years, I, I raised chickens. Uh-huh. And so, um, I would look and see, are they into animals? Are they, you know, contributing to the Humane Society? You find out, you know, those unique things and, and then extract that and build a conversation on it. And the reality is, for the most part, people love to talk about themselves. And I was never on social media until I was on, you know, the Atlanta Business Radio Show and somebody, a marketing person said, you know, I noticed you're not on Facebook or Instagram. You really should be because you kind of come off as not very warm or friendly. But if people knew all of your unique qualities and how interesting you are, you would be more approachable. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. And it's true, you know, sharing in life with people and, and looking at the stories is, is enjoyable. And there's so much um, information that can be had and it's, it's just a great way to grow. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when I find just like a simple statement or in a, another interview they did or something on their profile. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to ask you about that. Cause it's just one or two words, but I think there's a, I think there's something deeper we can, we can dive into. So um, yeah, so I like to end on these two questions, kind of in, in the essence of what you just mentioned, but is there a book that's had the greatest impact on your thinking or you've recommended the most to other people? Um, gosh, there's a lot of books. I read a bunch. Um, I like to have one nonfiction and one fiction going at all times. And I look back in like 2020, I probably read over 70 books. Oh, wow. I like a, a book a week minimum. I don't really watch TV. I do read a lot. And one of the books that resonates with me, and this really goes with what we're talking about and the theme of connecting, um, it's a book called The Power of Moments and is by Dan and Chip Heath. And The Power of Moments talks about how you can define moments that shape people's lives, okay? We we don't have to wait for memorable moments to happen. We can create them. And I think what I like the most about this book is that it can be connecting on a, a personal level, whether it means like a family gathering that you're having. How can you make that a more memorable moment? What small details, what activities, what, what things can you add to make it a more memorable moment? And it makes the point that we define moments um, through insight, pride, connection, um, elevation. How can you bring people up? And um, it's it's a great book. I'm not going to tell you anymore because I hope you read it because yeah. it does help with um, like, how can you commemorate milestones, which is something that I try to do now with my clients. It's like, any reason to celebrate. Okay, you just did your 1,000 um, teleneurology consults. Let's celebrate. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Or in the case of stroke, you just got your door-to-needle time down to 40 minutes when it was 65 a year ago. I mean, reasons to celebrate. When you try to deepen those ties, it's like, how can you just one small detail make it more memorable? That's awesome. I'm going to check out that book. Um, I read a lot as well. So my strategy is a little bit different. I probably have 10 or 15 books going on, on, on you know, at one time. So um, and I'm constantly reading, you know, reading a few pages here and trying to tie it all, all together. But um, I'll definitely check that out. 
Yeah, for sure. And I led a couple book clubs on the book. So if oh, one, cool. yeah, let's chat because yeah, um, I'd love to I'd love to talk to you about it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, is there a purchase over the last 12 months of $100 or less that's had a great improvement on your life? <laughs> that's kind of funny. Um, so I love to cook and I'm not all that into kitchen gadgets, although I recently got an immersion blender, which is kind of like a wand and it plugs in and um, for soups or purees. Um, and I, I love that. And it was definitely under $100, especially if you're making a hot soup and you don't want to put it in, into the blender. It kind of, you can blend it in the pot. That would be one. And then I also recently purchased this really cool smoker. And it's like, I have a big green egg, so I love to smoke. But this is for inside. And it's like a, a glass dome with a little hole in it. And then there's a tube that goes from the inside to this little thing that's like a almost looks like a lighter. And there's a place to put your wood chips in and then you light it and it basically burns the chip and it goes into whatever's under the dome. Oh, wow. Super cool for like if I want to make a chipotle sauce and I want it to taste smoky, but I get the big green egg going or. If I'm just um, maybe bacon, I have bacon and I it's already cooked, but I want to infuse some smoke into it. It's the coolest thing. And it was all, I think it was probably $38. Um, I'll be buying it as a Christmas gift for many this year because it was so cool. Um, first time I took it out of the box, I was like, what else can I smoke? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You have to send over the name to that. I'll include it in the, in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I will. Uh, Amazon. Well, Amy, thanks so much for making the talk for this. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, if they have some questions about something that you said or just want to connect, where's the best place for them to do that? Sure. So you can always call me 404-310-1777 or um, aotto at virtualmedstaff.com. And I love talking to people, even if even if uh, somebody that isn't interested in a telemedicine program with me, per se, to share knowledge and, and compare notes and thought leaders and industry leaders in healthcare. I love to talk with them. That's awesome. I'll definitely, uh, definitely include that. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, hope you'll tune into future episodes. Uh, they're available on all the major plat podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Also, we'll be posting these on my uh, website, LinkedIn, Twitter pages, a uh, bunch of places that you can get access to it. But until then and next time, hope you have a great day.